been to some bad dinner parties in my time, but this movie, I think that's the worst. That would be the worst dinner party. Yeah, it's a go ahead, Arthur. I was just going to say, I am Logan Marshall Green at every uh, social event like this that I have to go to. Like, I don't want to be involved or talk to anybody. That, Bro, that I tell me. you what, yeah, this movie does a great job of capturing that feel of uh, having way too much going on emotionally for you to be at a party. Yeah. <laughs> and all the time wondering if your hosts are going to murder you. Yeah. Uh, it is also weird, like, I don't know, I hadn't seen this movie since it first came out. I, I had forgotten that just how similar it is to uh, last week's movie Midsommar. And by last week, I mean five minutes ago's movie Midsommar. I'm going to let everyone have a peek behind the curtain a little bit. I'm going to say this. I totally forgot. I had I had not seen this movie. I had it misremembered with uh, We Are Who We Are, the cannibalism movie. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's what I thought we were watching. Oh, um, that's Which funny. would be a, also a very, very bad dinner party. Yes, for different reasons. <laughs> or similar I, you know, reasons, I guess. I think it's chill to be friends with your ex, right? Like, good for anybody that can do it. I don't, I don't necessarily know that, like, a dinner party is the environment that you need to, like, socialize in, though, right? That seems... Especially like, well, I mean, and this setup where, but yeah, well, I was gonna say in this setup where she's been gone for two years, and this is the first interaction anybody's had with her uh, since she's found love with her new beau. uh, It it would be very uncomfortable, I would imagine, like very weird. Yeah, Yeah, it's unclear. You know, we we do learn that um, you know Eden's uh, new beau, David. Uh, is somebody she met at a, a grief group. Do do we do we ever learn if like this friend group knew David before? Is that ever made clear? I don't think they did. I, I, the way I read it is she kind of went off to find help, and that's when she met him. And and that either they went to Mexico for that, or she, you know, they went to Mexico shortly after. Yeah, I was yeah, just because because you know Gina knew he would have cocaine. Right, like, there's a lot of moving pieces in this movie, and I, I kind of love all of them, honestly. We're now just talking about the plot of this fun movie. Yeah, hello everybody, and welcome to the Good Trash Honorcast. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in film today's course. We continue our all-in-the-family marathon looking at cult films, uh, that is, films about cults, uh, to be very, very clear there. I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. Uh, and I am now uh, the podcaster formerly known as Dalton. You can call me Moonbeam. And um, I would like to uh, tell you about a fun group I'm a part of. I will not do that. Thank you. Thank you so Sorry, much. Dalton. Uh, but no. Uh, anyway, so we're going to be talking about this great film, The Invitation, which is a load of fun, question mark. Uh, time for the whole family. Yeah, well, <laughs> depends on the family. Uh, but we want to tell you a little bit about the show. It is an analysis show, not a review show. And that does mean we're going to have to spoil the film. And we've already sort of mentioned that there's a murder plot involved in this. And so, but we're going to generally try to avoid spoilers the first part of the show in case you have not seen The Invitation yet. So what it looks like is this. There's a synopsis, which will be spoiler-free, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, very, very gentle, if any. Uh, Then we move on to a little exercise called Explain the Syllabus, which probably won't spoil this film as much as other films in this movie's orbit. And then finally we get down to business, and that business will be analysis. And uh, that will mean all spoiler bets are off. So there is uh, your disclaimer and warning. So without any further ado, Arthur, do you have a synopsis for us? I most certainly do. 
Uh, let's see what we haven't already covered here. Uh, Will and his girlfriend Kira are invited to a reunion with friends at his ex-wife Eden's house. Already talked about that. Uh, it, it's been two years since anyone has seen Eden, and she went to Mexico with her beau David. We covered that. Uh, the dinner party is awkward as past trauma set everyone on edge. Uh, handed at that. Uh, but when David and Eden's new friends arrive, the party takes an uncomfortable turn. So with that in mind, let's talk about whether or not we like this movie. What do we think of Bobo Tom Hardy and uh, his antics at a dinner party? I go to you first, Arthur. <laughs> uh, we love him. I love his antics. Oh, man, his crazy antics. Uh, I uh, Like I said, this movie is capital I, capital F indie film. Uh, from the way it's shot, lit, cast, uh, it, it feels very much like a... Uh, uh, what you would call uh, a stereotype as an independent film, I, I think, in many regards. Uh, that being said, though, I, I think there's a lot to admire here. Um, while most of the cast feels very much, you know, like a bunch of ringers they found on the cheap, uh, there are a couple of fine, uh, you know, supplemental performances, but it, it's really Logan, Marshall Green, and uh, um, Mikhail, Michael, uh, he's Heisman's uh, film, the, the, the Game of Thrones cat. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's really their movie uh, in many ways, and and I think they nail it. Uh, obviously, I love John Carroll Lynch. Um, I, I wish he has more to do. He he really does steal the movie here with his one monologue. Uh, but the way in which he just embodies Pruitt, uh, he's got these weird kind of stiff, uncomfortable nuances that he he brings to that that performance and character. Uh, Pruitt is very hard to get a read on because he's John Carroll Lynch is just naturally, I think able to uh, put on this uh, uh, air about himself that he can be very formidable and intimidating, uh, but he could also be a big teddy bear uh, and he's got a great range. Uh, and so I, I like what he's doing as Pruitt. And I wish that character really got to do a little more. Um, he kind of comes in and feels like, the the puppet master for what's happening but it, it never really gets to to that point i don't feel um as far as a character progression but but uh those three uh really still the show uh, and there's some other fun supplemental turns i think from other cast members but by and large it feels like their movie um i i, I like uh really what i like about this movie i think what really works for this movie is karen kasama's direction uh, the, the the nature of this narrative and and the way it's laid out could really flatline, and I think she has a mastery of rising tension here that allows this movie to go to one place, lead you one direction, throw you off your footing, give you a minute to breathe, and and then she raises the stakes and, and ratchets the tension. And I think that's a real masterstroke by act three when things really hit the fan, uh, really catching you off guard because we have that great moment where Logan Marshall Green gets to have this this breakdown, essentially, uh, and looks like he's about to be proven right. And, and that kind of crumbles uh, in, in the moment. And, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, she Kasama is able to ramp it to the next level. And I think that about this movie more than anything else, that that ability to play with tension and suspense. And, and I, I wonder if there's, a you know, maybe an analysis we could get into this, but the idea of introducing a cult uh, pretty early in this movie. Right. Um, 
I think that idea, and, and we talked about this some last week when we talked about the preconceived notions of what that word invokes, cult. And, and that naturally lends an air of suspense to this movie just in knowing that there is a cult involved in some way. And, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic narratively because, you know, you're immediately in the world of suspense and it's not, you know, if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. And I think that's interesting as well. Uh, so I think her mastery of tone and, and narratively playing with that, uh, tension as well as the editing, I think editing plays a part in that as well. Um, coupled with some, some subversions that happen in act three and and the things I want to say, I can't say about it because of spoilers. Uh, but I, I like decisions that are made with how this, uh, plays out, uh, with the people involved uh, and maybe we can come back into that a little later and the way that's handled. But I, you know, I don't want to give away much about that right now. If you haven't seen this movie, I, I think it's solid little thriller suspense film. I, I think it's got a couple of really great performances, but I think Kasama's direction is the real star of this and the way it's managed and, and navigates uh, that tension throughout is, is really what makes this stand apart. So that that's where I'm at with the invitation. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like the invitation? Do you accept the invitation? Maybe a better question to ask. I'll take two, in fact, Dustin. Yeah, I'd like this movie a lot. I think it kicks ass. Uh, it, it, it is everything that, that Midsommar is not. And I don't necessarily mean that as a, a dig against either film. I, I just mean that that is sort of the the kind of movie it is. Both are, you know, smaller, more you know, creator-driven independent productions. But, you know, this is does not have the support of a studio like A24, right? This was made totally on the fly. Hopefully we get a distributor at some point. Um, and is, you know, a return to directing for Karen Kusama after uh, the, the studio system done did or dirty uh, in the prior decade. Um, and I, I think it really does kind of sing in that sort of way. It does feel like a, I'm back and I never went away, you dum-dums. Like, that is the, sort of the feel that I get from this movie. As Arthur has already articulated, yeah, this, this so much of this rests on on what is done uh, with tone uh, by Kusama. And again, I, her editor on this, Plummy Tucker, uh, does her a lot of favors as well. I, I think um, the shot choices uh edits all of, all of these things work together to unnerve you in a way that is extremely effective and, and as arthur said we can't I, you know this is an underseen film i think so i don't i don't want to get too spoilery too quick uh, but i it, it is uh, i i think really quite a feat how well this film keeps you on your toes about what is going on. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get more into, you know, cult talk uh, here in a little bit. But as, yeah, as Arthur said, we, we talked a little uh, on our Midsommar episode about, you know, sort of the distinctions between new religious movements, high control groups, you know, sort of trying to not just use a kind of a uh, the word cult, which paints with a broad brush. And I think the invitation does a really good job of, of making you think about the ways in which the, these definitions are very fuzzy, right? Uh, and how uh, people's beliefs are, are things that they take very seriously uh, and how you need to be both careful about your own safety, but how you can't always, you can't always know how you're going to set somebody off, both uh, in terms of, you know, trying to converse with them about their beliefs or, uh, 
you know, how they're going to react to your reaction uh, when you, if they try to pitch you their beliefs. And I know I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole a little bit with way too many uh, pronouns and adjectives. Uh, but I, it's just such an unnerving film in such an effective way. And as far as never letting you know really who is actually the low status or high status character in a scene, right? Um, we, we frequently talk about LMG, Logan Marshall Green, on this show. We call him the knockoff Tom Hardy, the Bobo Tom Hardy. I think he's really good in this movie. And in fact, I, I like him most of the time. I, I think he is a, a very talented actor whose career will probably uh, be hampered by the fact there's a dude that looks and sounds a lot like him that's much more successful uh, until, you know, age makes them look like different dudes. Uh, I think his career is probably going to keep living a Tom Hardy shadow, unfortunately. But I, I think his performance in The Invitation, you know, more than things like uh, Upgrade, which we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, uh, definitely a much more seen film. Uh, I, I think even though this is not like a, you know, a film that a lot of people have got their eyes on, I think it is a great calling card for both Kusama uh, and uh, Logan Marshall Green, because uh, I think their talents really are at the forefront of this movie. Um, both in terms of, you know, uh, Green's performance, Marshall Green's performance, keeping you on your toes, right? You, you believe him that he doesn't feel safe in this environment, but his performance and the direction do a great job of making you uncertain if he's justified in that feeling of unsafety or if he is justified are his reactions to that feeling of danger uh, going to be successful, right? Is he actually the danger? And all, all of these sorts of questions are all stem from the sort of, uh, you know, horror of social interaction going on in this movie. And, and definitely we we had some of that when we discussed Midsommar. You know, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that movie uh, as far as, you know, how, how do, uh, how, how can it be rocky trying to, uh, you know, introduce one social group to another, especially when we're talking about uh, very vast cultural differences. Here we have, uh, you know, a group of people in the LA area, uh, all presumably of similar backgrounds to some extent. Um, And yet that uh, closeness in terms of life experience does not mitigate (laughs) the, uh, the, the social horror going on, right? Just because, uh, uh, they're all, you know, from the same area and uh, presumably some college friends, right? Like we don't really get a firm feel on how everyone knows each other, which I kind of like. Uh, but anyway, you know, it, all that to say the invitation shows you, you know, you don't have to go to Sweden and hang out with the Horga uh, to find some weirdos trying to sell you something. Uh, and I, I think, uh, you know, the sort of the the true crime boom has made its pivot over the last probably uh, four to five years to you know uh, abusive high control groups to cults um, and, and I think that this this film really is kind of interesting right like this discourse is definitely kicked off now you know the very high profile uh, documentaries about Nexium and, and sort of uh, everything going on there you know this would have been around the time frame when that was still kind of a flourishing movement uh, if my uh, you know if my, my mental timeline serves so it, it is interesting to see this this movie with a you know bunch of uh, filmmakers and actors who are presumably LA based uh, since they didn't really have a lot of travel budget on this. It, it is interesting to see that group, uh, you know, this group of creatives try to tackle uh, something that is kind of an issue in their community. And uh, again, I, I think the, the film's, you know, big strength is not letting you know if you're in a thriller or a horror movie or a drama for basically the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think when we get into analysis, we can kind of talk about distinctions between thriller and horror. 
Um, but I, I think this film just, I, I don't know. I got sucked in immediately. I, again, I had seen this movie before. It had been a couple of years. And within 15 minutes, I was just completely uh, transfixed. I had forgotten what a ride this movie is. And, and I think, again, uh, Arthur has already said it. And I'll just go ahead and put my, my pin in this here. It, it is all uh, due, I, I think, in large part to Kasama's direction. It, it really does uh, give you a lot um, as far as not only managing the tone of of the film, but really within given scenes, we, we get shifts uh, in both like film tone and, and the actors performances that are giving you so much without ever giving you a firm answer on what you should be keeping your eyes on. Um, it, it is a really effective uh, film in that regard, as far as just kind of playing a lot of uh, look at the right hand. So you don't see what the left hand is doing type stuff. Uh, I was just going to say real quick, I, I think the, the, prime example of what you're talking about here is that um you know i want game sequence mm. the because of the range of tone and emotion that occurs over the course of that five to ten minute sequence yeah you're absolutely right that's a great example arthur yeah there's a couple of really big kind of set piece moments and i think that one's sort of the biggest but yeah in this dinner party we, we get a, a handful of, of different moments like that right where where we just kind of have to live in scenes. Uh, and, and I think that's one of my favorite things about this movie is it does unfold in something that feels close to real time, right? Like we're, you know, we've probably used some elliptical editing to get us past, you know, 15 to 20 minute chunks here and there. But by and large, like we are just kind of like with uh, uh, Logan Marshall Green's character, Will, we're just kind of in the backseat with him watching these very uncomfortable moments unfold uh, and, and being, you know, uh, forced to kind of experience his memories uh, that he has of this house uh, and how all of that is kind of colliding within him. Yeah, it's it's so good. And I had kind of, I, again, I, I had forgotten just how good it is. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you, to you all about it today because I think, again, there is sort of a maximalist approach going on in, in Midsommar. And I, I think this uh, strips away a, a lot of the really kind of impressive production stuff that that film has. And it's, it's all technique. It's all, you know, tone management. Uh, it, it's all, what can you do with actors in a house? Uh, and, and the answer is uh, tell an extremely effective and extremely startling story. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree very much. Thank you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I think this movie belongs next to Hitchcock's rope is what I was thinking about a lot. Yeah, sure. Uh, it, it, it is that kind of suspense story. Now, in uh, Hitchcock, he gives more away uh, than this film does. Mm -hmm. And the way it plays its cards so close to the vest actually makes it more interesting. And uh, so in, in some senses, uh, the film does uh, seem to have uh, greater control and restraint than even Hitchcock does in A Masterpiece Life Rope, uh, which has you know, got this sort of gimmicky conceit of you know being one single take although it's technically not one take but anyway it, it gives that illusion um and so that's that's the thing i thought about a lot watching the movie and i do tammy blanchard her there was a thing when i realized that this movie wasn't the movie i thought it was and realized i had mm. no idea what it was um she has large canines and <laughs> I was waiting for her to be a vampire. I really was uh, for, for, for a significant part of the first 20 minutes of this movie. And uh, uh, yeah, just, you know. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that's a turn this could definitely take. 
you know. But once we met Sadie, and uh, that name carries a certain um, cultural baggage, uh, which was a a bit of an Easter egg. But uh, once we met her, I kind of knew where we were going, you know, uh, there with the movie. But I didn't know how it was going to play out. And those last 15, 20 minutes, uh, once the big reveal takes place as to what what is going to happen in this movie, uh, it is desperately uh, nerve wracking. Uh, The tension is is so high. I was I was up in knots and so it's just effective filmmaking and it is indie with a capital i as you said arthur uh the only thing that irritated me about that you know indie movies love a soft focus lens Mm -hmm. and uh, that's fine but there's a choice to use a soft focus lens from inside the car looking forward at the coyote uh hitting incident Mm -hmm. and it because of that you don't see i mean obviously the the car is probably in a set someplace and they're hiding where it is you know, for the sake of their budget. Uh, but it makes it look like the windshield's broken. And I kept like, what's wrong with the windshield? Oh, wait, it's just a soft focus of the lens. And so there, there was a moment there where those sort of indie conceits kind of took away a little bit from the film for me. Yeah. But that yeah. was- Hey, I'll tell you what, uh, nothing gets the entire audience startled right away like the sound of screeching brakes, though, right? Way, right. To, way to just like set everyone on edge immediately. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, we've all been in car accidents. We've all hit animals. You know, it's- it's a thing. Uh, but yeah, a very, very effective film. Very, very affecting film. Uh, dealing with trauma. Uh, again, as we did with Midsummer, Dealing with cults as we have. And uh, the weird sort of rules of social dynamics interaction. I, I think in a lot of ways, it reminds me of a little bit of Boonwell. And uh, mm. some of those, uh, you know, exterminating angel just for the rules yeah. of when you're all together, oh, what yeah. you're supposed to do kind of stuff. And what happens when those rules get broken? It's not at all the same kind of film as The Exterminating Angel, but uh, I thought about it a lot um, as I watched it. Uh, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts uh, initially regarding in the invitation. Uh, with that being said, we're going to move on to our little thought exercise called Expanding the Syllabus. Arthur, can you tell us what that's all about? Expanding the syllabus is a thought experiment wherein we, the hosts, assemble an academic course or module within a course based around the assigned viewing for the week and adjacent texts, from books and articles to tangentially related films and stories. You know, Dustin, he told you one of these days he would really get your number with this this whole thing you've been trying to pull on him, and I I, I think he did it. He's he's got you. But no, he does. But I just like sharing the load. Uh, so you know, you can carry the <laughs> ring for me, some Frodo or uh, <laughs> Samwise. And uh, so I'm glad you did that. Thank you very much. And with that, Arthur, what does your syllabus look like? Yeah, the more I thought about this and kind of going into that idea of the tension within the scenes, I I really wanted to come at this from a more technical standpoint. I I think, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe talking about uh, we got into this some a bit when we did a classic Hollywood filmmaking. I can't remember who wrote that book off the top. Boardwell, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, in that course, and you know, Chris and Thompson. Yeah. Uh, in that that text, you know, which is really kind of what inspired this podcast to begin with, the idea of using, uh, you know, non art style movies to talk about the technical side of filmmaking and an analytical side of film. Uh, I was thinking about that approach of of using this and and some of the scenes from this, and maybe even doing just scene studies to really look at the technical stuff. And I'm talking about the use of a setting the use of production design, the use mm. of lighting and cinematography and, and blocking, especially uh, how that all feeds into 
what is occurring on screen and, and affecting what the audience is seeing and reacting to. Uh, and so I'm really thinking of this from a much more technical standpoint, I think. Uh, and, and I really want to get into some of those ideas and talk about production design and mise-en-scene and how that in, influences uh, the audience and, and can add to the meaning of the film. Um, maybe kind of getting in a bit to auteurism and, and how that kind of dirties uh, that, you know, because, uh, you know, the director may have some say on production design, but the director's not doing the production design typically. And so some of that, you know, communication and meaning that the film might have can be influenced by you know, those third parties, which really throws a wrench, I think, into auteur theory, even though mise-en-scene is a big part of auteur theory. Uh, and so I think that's so interesting that dichotomy and dynamic that play uh so i want to look at that and, and specifically thinking blocking was the big thing i pointed out that that sequence uh the the i want game that they play where everybody's kind of moving around and and interacting and there's a lot of movement in this film people moving back and forth across you know uh, to the front of the frame to the back of the frame uh the or you know the depth of the the shot uh, people going upstairs, downstairs, just movement in general. There's a lot going on. And, and that movement, I think, adds to the tension because, one, we don't know what's in this house. And we see some unsettling things uh, at times in this house. So we don't know, you know, if this is a house of horrors or, or like I think Dalton said, you know, is this a drama or is it a horror? Is it, you know, we don't know what it is. Uh, and, and so that movement really adds to that that drama and tension. And, and Blocking is a huge part of thrillers. I think, especially specifically of uh, slasher films, you know, movement is is the the huge part of those jump scares when the the killer steps out of the thing or or penetrates the closet or whatever. Uh, and so, I think blocking is very vital to the success of a thriller uh, or or many movies. Uh, and some of these are going to be not necessarily thrillers because my first one is Beetlejuice. And I think of the dinner party sequence uh, where yes. we, uh, we get the dance number, right? Uh, where in that instance, the blocking and everything uh, is being used to develop the tension of the comedy at play. And, and again, we've talked at, at times in the past about how comedy and horror are related. And I think that's a good example of how the blocking of that adds to the tension of the comedy at play of this kind of possession going on. And the, the comical dance number that's taking place and, and at that table. Uh, from there, I want to go to something a little more uh, traditional, and that's guess who's coming to dinner. Uh, and, and talk about, you know, this may be a little more uh, about the actual uh, um, social and cultural tensions. Uh, but also, there's a lot of movement around the house as the the four main characters are kind of going back and forth with one another and pairing off and, and interacting and engaging with one another. Um, from guess who's coming to dinner. I want to jump back into comedy because I, I, I thought so much of clue uh, watching the invitation because sure that movement through the house really, you know, mirrors, I think clue clue is kind of the madcap zany version of the invitation, right? Whereas as people are darting from room to room and again, like Beetlejuice, uh, it's underscoring the tension and the comedy of that and the the slapstick and the, the body comedy that's taking place in Clue. And Dustin's already name dropped this one, but I think you got to talk about rope. Uh, really, you got to talk about production design. You're definitely going to be talking about blocking and the use of that long take and those trick shots uh, to make that look like a single take film uh, and how much the blocking 
had to play into that, right? Because as people are moving through the house, they're having to move furniture, move sets, change sets, shift these giant cameras around uh, to be able to capture what's going on. And so I really want to kind of dive into that and how Hitchcock utilizes that and plays with that and, and works with that to create something so fascinating. And I like that comparison, Dustin, that you're drawing with rope and the invitation because they are kind of part and parcel, I think, in a, a really interesting way. Uh, so that's the course I think I would, uh, or at least the module I would teach within a, maybe a traditional film studies type course or classical, you know, cinema. Very cool. Very cool. I like that very much, Arthur. What are you going to do, Dalton, for a class using the invitation? Well, my first impulse was to uh, just uh, do a uh, career study uh, of, of Karen Kusama, um, who I think is number one, just a fabulous filmmaker. But number two, I think uh, has a lot to offer us when we look at her career. Uh, we can kind of see uh, the kind of rampant uh, sexism that exists within the uh, the Hollywood machine uh, and how uh, who gets a lot of chances and who doesn't get very many chances and who gets their movie fucked with and who doesn't and you know how uh, bad marketing can uh, kill uh, a film that should be you know a huge hit and it you know it instead takes 10 years for people to appreciate um, and also I just need an excuse to catch up with girl fight which is an impossible movie to find um, it's not impossible it's just not streaming anywhere um, and while I still think uh, you can and should uh, use a, a Karen Kusama's filmography to teach a class, I changed my mind. I, I do kind of uh, want to talk about something that might be adjacent to, to Arthur's. And uh, I, I want to do the, the horror of social interaction because uh, there's so many movies about how fun house parties can be. Uh, but there's only a few that I can think of anyway that are about how terrifying house parties can be. Uh, so we are going to look at the aforementioned Exterminating Angel, uh, which Dustin has already brought up. Uh, we'll look at the uh, the French classic Rules of the Game, which we talked earlier this year. Uh, we'll look at uh, the recent film's Mother, uh, which, God, you, could you talk about that movie for a while? Uh, we'll look Good at Beatrice. And, yeah, I'm sorry, what was that? Good pull. Good pull. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man, that movie... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that movie is a, a great film about how stressful it can be to have your house full of people, huh? Don't sit on the sink. <laughs> that sink is not braced. Um, I, we'll look at Beatrice at dinner, which I haven't actually caught up with, but I, I've heard some interesting things about. Um, if you're not familiar, it's a film in which Selma Hayek plays uh, John Lithgow's, uh, I think, cleaning lady, a, a domestic employee of some kind, and uh, for whatever reason ends up stranded at his house and has to uh, be uh, you know, his, his token poor friend. Uh, at, at this rich people dinner party. And I've, I've heard very interesting things. I'm really curious about it. I will also look at uh, the, the slasher thriller, You're Next, which I think uh, looks at how, even if it's just your family at a dinner party, that can be its own bag of nightmares uh, on its own. Uh, we'll also look at coherence, which I, you know, what if the invitation, but instead of a, a spooky new religious movement, uh, what if the multiverse collided in on itself? Oops. Um, yeah, oops, you hate it when that happens. Uh, and of course, Rules of the Game, I, I know I already mentioned, but if you're not familiar with the film listener, uh, just, you know, it, it is both a, a, a drama and a comedy and a lot of other things, honestly. Uh, but it, it is about sort of the upstairs, downstairs dynamics of uh, how rich people uh, throw a party, which again, your next gets into a little bit as well. Uh, and, and of course, so does Exterminating Angel. I think all of these films uh, do deal with class in some respect, including uh, the invitation, although maybe much, much more kind of subtly. Uh, but again, I think all of these films look at, well, Dustin, you kind of alluded to sort of the, 
the interesting ways in which social dynamics are employed to 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 use to make scares in this. Um, and it reminded me of a line Stellan Skarsgård has uh, in uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And I'm sure it's probably from the book. I can't remember if it's in the, uh, the Swedish version of the, the movie. But it, he has a line to the effect of, you know, pe- people would uh, le- rather let themselves be murdered than be impolite. And I, I am paraphrasing here. Uh, but that is sort of the crux of a lot of these movies I just listed, uh, and, and including The Invitation in some ways. And I, I think that is something really interesting and again we have real world examples uh, of people being polite despite uh you know danger being afoot and it causing them you know bodily harm which is of course not not to say that you know you you deserve it if you don't listen to your internal alarm bells uh, it, it is just to say that our our social conventions uh are, are so predicated upon politeness and and rule and custom that it it is so jarring when people are not following those rules uh, or using those rules to manipulate us that we don't always really know what to do when it happens. And, and I think all of these films uh, do a great job of uh, making genre premises. Well, not all of them, but some of these films uh, take uh, a, a genre premise look at the question of when do you leave a party? Because God, who even knows when is it polite or uh, more importantly, do do you eschew politeness in favor of your own comfort, right? All all of these questions uh, that that can occur, and I think when we, we look at these films, uh, I think we can just kind of use them to kind of explore uh, further social psychological concepts. You know, we we can look at the ways in which uh, certain social settings require different sets of rules. Uh, we we can look at the ways in which you know. Uh, Interactions can be benign or malicious, uh, or you know, can be malicious despite a, a lack of malicious intent. Uh, I, I think all all of these films have something to offer us, and they are all kind of a, a approaching this uh, from different angles, right? We've got a comedy in here, we've got a couple of horror movies, uh, but you know, we, we've also got just sort of a, a you know a, a, an experiential film that's kind of where plot is secondary in the case of both mother and the exterminating angel. Uh, it's not the, it's just exterminating angel. I'm pretty sure. I don't think there's an article on that, but again, I, I think all of these films are, are really interesting. Uh, and again, are in, I think the, the invitation is in conversation with all of these, some of which uh, maybe even deliberately, but, but not all of which, but again, all, all of these are, are dealing with this feeling of, uh, aloneness within a group, which I think is really interesting, especially Mother in this film. Um, but but Coherence does a great job of also looking at um, who are you at a party? Are you really yourself? Or are you somebody else? And would you even know the difference? Would the people closest to you know the difference? Right. Um, which is something I really appreciate about that film. Uh, and then again, Exterminating Angel kind of uh, and uh, Rules of the Game, both asking us questions such as what is the cost of a party? And if you knew the real cost of a party, would you ever want to go to one? Right. And, and you know, what kind of party and whose party and all, all of these. And I'm sure, uh, of course, Beatrice at dinner, as I mentioned, is a blind spot for me, but uh, I, I assume gets into th- the ways in which people are expected to uh, uh, represent something other than themselves at a party, uh, or especially at, you know, how do you deal with being an outsider uh, at, at a party? And again, all, all of these different minutiae, you know, kind of collide together in uh, a, a way. Well, I think it's best uh, summed up by the way uh, 
Will, uh, the character played by Logan Marshall Green, he addresses something David says to him. And I, I think this, this will be a good place to kind of put a pin in this. Um, he, he basically says something to the effect of, uh, you know, hey, look, you know what? I should apologize. I don't know you and I don't know what you've been through, but also you don't know me. How could you? Right. And there is this kind of small moment of tension between the two of them. Uh, but it is is uh, Will, the character of Will, trying to assert himself while still staying in the bounds of what is socially acceptable, uh, but also putting a, articulating what I think is a really good point, which is we can't ever know the person next to us. We can try to come to understand them as they present themselves, but at the end of the day, we are all just making a wild guess about who the person next to us is. Uh, and I think all of these films uh, do a really, really good job of exploring that uh, from a, a lot of different angles. And I, I think they're, they're films that we can look at to uh, ask ourselves a lot of questions uh, about how we interact with each other within the world. Very cool. Very cool. I like that class a lot, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I think what I would do with this movie is kind of the bill of this marathon um, to talk about just cults and use cinema to teach uh, maybe within like a theology and film course. And I, I think the way I'd organize it in terms of what it would look like on an actual syllabus would be uh, this might be a, uh, a possible research assignment. So we might watch uh, this film or one of the other films that I'm about to mention. And then your possibilities for your final paper would be to watch the rest of them and sort of come up with a cinematic representation of uh, high control groups and how that works and uh, to make some diagnoses of that. And in a theology and culture uh, or theology and film class to make <coughs> appropriate prescriptions for theological practice that avoids uh, that, that kind of foolishness. Um, so that, that's what I think I would do. And so the invitation obviously is that I think I'd move in then to, uh, although I don't like this person, I think the film is still powerful and that's Rosemary's baby. Um, and, uh, a movie uh, about the sort of next door neighbors and the same kind of social, um, niceties and politeness at work, but also, uh, touching on those ideas of the satanic panic of the late seventies into the early part of the 1980s. And uh, just that side of cultishness and uh, cultish behavior. Um, I then would use the Netflix series Waco, um, talking about the Branch Davidians and David Koresh and their sort of the ultimate destruction um, of uh, that uh, compound there on Mark, uh, Mount Carmel, uh, there just north of Waco. I think it'd be fascinating uh, to look at that. Rather than doing something direct, Jonestown directly related, I think I might use The Sacrament, the Ty West film. Uh, that is sort of a dramatization of a, you know, Jonestown adjacent uh, kind of event, which has a lot of valences uh, that it shares with the invitation. Uh, and then finally, uh, the documentary Jesus Camp and looking at something that's uh, within, a, you know, Christian theological orthodoxy, but still within high control, uh, problematic okay. uh, kind of uh, manipulative uh, behavior. And Dustin, uh, I, we, I know we, we touched on Jesus Camp very briefly in the uh, the lost version uh, of our discussion on, on Midsommar. We didn't actually, the, the version that made it air, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I, I'm glad you found room for it today because, yeah, very, very interesting to talk about it as far as in connection to these types of high control groups. Absolutely. And and so that I think that interaction with that, and again, sort of working that out in a class uh, in terms of a paper in terms of uh, a more appropriate sort of theological praxis and uh, to see the ways in which uh, religious uh, organization itself 
uh, can be really, really thoroughly dangerous and the ways in which we other, you know, certain groups of people as well. And uh, we're not them and therefore we're okay uh, kind of stuff. I think would be some interesting conversations to be had as well. So that's what my syllabus looks like, dear friends. And uh, dear listener, your syllabus just got much longer. I believe now, though, it's time for us to get down to business. Oh, there's so much to talk about with this movie and uh, so many places in which we could start. But I thought I would begin with the idea of the proselytization party. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Well, and this, of course, could be uh, proselytizing your beliefs, but also, you know, your side hustle, right? Right, Mary Kay parties, right? Uh, I was thinking, yeah, like essential oils, but sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I I guess I dated myself there. Uh, Amway, let's go go our parents' generation, (laughs) shall we? Avon calling. Yeah, Avon, all of which are somewhat cultish in their sort of devotion, and you, you put together these events with this secondary purpose and uh generally it it is frowned upon it's not gauche right uh to do that kind of thing and yet there there, there, there's a side in which i'm sort of sympathetic if a person has found their way into a a kind of support group for instance if we think about this the 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 sort of unnamed cult um Mm -hmm. of the invitation a support group that has uh, sort of found a, a spiritual way of living their lives in which uh, they've been able to redeem themselves, find meaning and purpose. You know, a, a person uh, like Pruitt um, as a character who has uh, done a terrible thing, yet that person still lives and exists in the world and needs to find some sort of reconciliation with what he's done and with himself uh, and uh, is, is worthy of finding a way to moving forward uh, despite the terrible thing he's done. Um, that's good, but there's a way in which they don't read the signs of disinterest, right? And furthermore, uh, the fact that there is a death that happens on the video that they show, right? Um, that they don't seem to recognize that things with which they have been acclimatized and with which they are comfortable, they see some sort of beauty in that, that there's a sort of a failure to see. There's a lack of empathy, I think, that sort of is created in a lot of sort of proselytization Mm. um, training Mm. is is you don't really learn to read the signs as to whether or not someone is open or interested in what you're selling, you know, Uh, not that selling it is bad. Yeah. But uh, there's there's a certain insistence that is at root here that is that's truly problematic. I was going to say it. it feels, you know, I've I've just had interactions with many of these people who, who buy into these different programs, uh, and anytime they do sell, it, it is very probably the pushiest form of salesmanship I've ever encountered. Uh, and beyond that, the the uh, encouragement for members to just you know blindly reach out to their you know friends of friends on social media as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of this removal of tact uh in some regards it's you know you make the sale to make this you know i think the inference and and the kind of connection to if you don't make the sale you don't make the money you don't succeed you know those three kind of tenets combined really creates an odd uh i think to your point uh 
lack of empathy, unempathetic uh, salespeople. Yeah. Uh, solution for a problem that someone else doesn't have, right? It, it's like when you get started doing keto, it, 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 is okay. what I thought, you know? If if it works for you and you feel better, great. Knock yourself yeah. out, and I mean, by all means, tell your friends you're doing it. But once, right? Yeah. Don't make them watch a video about it. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Don't have a dinner party, and yeah. Yeah, it is uh, super manipulative to uh, have people over to your house to sell them something. Uh, without yeah. letting them know that's why they're coming over. Yeah. Whether mm-hmm. that is a uh, you know a multi level marketing scheme. Um, or a new religious movement, right? right. It's, it's not chill, man. Uh, it, it's Dustin. It's funny you said um, before before you compared it to keto. I, I forget exactly the phrasing you used, but it it sort of made me think of it, it is kind of the uh, the dark flip side of an intervention, almost, right? It's one person gathering a group of people to tell them why they are wrong, and actually, I have become the secret <laughs> enlightened one, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is uh, a, the anti-intervention, which yeah. is interesting because, you know, a lot of uh, programs that uh, advocate sort of finding forgiveness and, you know, moving past the wreckage of your life um, talk about how interventions don't work for them until they were ready, right? Like, you, you could not be part of this until you were ready to be part of it. And then to foist it upon people before they're, quote unquote, ready, you know. Well, and uh, I, I don't know. They're, they're right. There's even within what you just said, uh, you, you are kind of adopting right the, the thinking of somebody within a group that has something to sell. Uh, but even within that thinking, there's a disconnect, right? Uh, there's an assumption that if a person rejects you, it's because they're not ready or right. there's something wrong with them, right? Uh, there, uh, there's a lot of great. Um, I was thinking more about recovery specific kind of stuff at that moment, but yeah. Okay, sure, sure. Okay, that that of course does make sense, but I I think that that could apply to a lot of things outside of the the realm of uh, you know twelve step programs and recovery programs a little bit. Um, I, I I guess I was specifically thinking about there's a, a David's the character David uses a negative emotions a couple of times is a phrase he uses uh you know and it, that's um I, I definitely want to know if phil hay uh, and matt manfredi um one of those is karen kusama's spouse but uh, the the that writing team that she's worked with a couple of times i definitely think that they've spent some time around uh, some obnoxious la people because yeah. there is a lot of new age speak that gets used really effectively in this film um and again that that negative emotion thing right like uh we talked about the distinction between um, new religious movements and high control groups uh, and how they both get lumped under uh, the, the heading of cult sometimes last week. Um, but, you know, high control groups will find a way to tell you your boundaries uh, are just negative emotions, right? That your, your, your boundaries for your personal comfort and safety are actually the thing holding you back from being your best self. Uh, and this is some shit that you can see in soci- uh, sociology, uh, Scientology, um, Nexium, right? Some very high profile uh, movements, uh, you know, one with a little bit longer longevity than the other. Um, but uh, I, I mean, straight up, uh, Keith Raniere is like, just using the uh, LRH playbook in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, these are these are playbooks that are not just used by new religious movements. These are playbooks that have been used by groups that have been around for uh, a lot longer than the 20th century, um, which I, I think is interesting, right? To to tell somebody that their reaction to you means that there's something wrong with them, as opposed to 
taking a step to say, and, and Dustin, you kind of alluded to this, right? This sort of the problem of proselytization, whatever it is you're selling, there is an assumption that you were right. And that if somebody rejects you, that there is a failing on their part taking place. Right. And that that's what a group like this asks you to believe and asks you to buy into. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I, 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 I oh, go ahead, Arthur. As you say, then I think you start to deal with the dangers of indoctrination as well. Totally. Well, you know, I, I don't talk about my, um, my background uh, religiously on the, on this show too, too much. Uh, but I, I definitely, you know, was in the, the evangelical church in an era and I, you know, I'm sure this is still part of what's going on within certain types of evangelical Protestantism. Um, but boy, howdy, do they want you to, uh, be a, a not cool teen. And by be a not cool teen, I mean, kind of bully people about Christianity. <laughs> They really want you to ostracize yourself from your larger peer group so that your only peer group is the one that they have pre-approved. Um, you know, any any failure of a proselytization, of a witnessing to someone, um, is only a, a, a further declaration of the strength of your faith and character, right? right. Uh, the more you ostracize yourself from your peers, the more you find favor with your in-group. Um, and, and in you know, that case, the in-group is, is the church. And, uh, of course the figure you really, uh, supposed to be currying favor with is the divine, uh, as defined by that group. Uh, and in the invitation, uh, both the film and the, the movement within the film, it's also called the invitation, confusingly enough. Um, it, it is just the, the pleasure of the in-group that you're trying to, or the, the favor of the in-group that you're trying to curry. It seems like there, there doesn't seem to be a, uh, you know, a larger, um, divinity it sort of seems to be kind of um both secular and religious in a way that's uh, disconcerting right they they definitely kind of speak out of both sides of their mouths a little bit uh, as far as what they believe as a group uh, in the film absolutely uh moving on to a topic i think that is related here is um the way in which uh what this group has done is normalized not normalized standardized a hmm. specific reaction to uh suffering uh so the the two the two major events we don't really know what's going on with new boyfriend uh as far as whatever he, i think his wife died maybe um yeah i think that's the implication yeah, yeah. So, so um he, i mean obviously there's a, a you know a loss of a spouse there a loss of a child uh for eden and for will and then uh the accidental you know manslaughter of a, of a wife uh for pruitt and uh so and, and then we watch this woman die, you know, on TV uh, from cancer or something like that in this. And, and they're having this, you know, very specific, you know, guided set of reactions uh, to death specifically. Right. That they're, yeah. they're they're guided to deal with death in a very specific kind of way that, that it seems in that sense to work for them, uh, to which I say more power to them. But uh, the way in which they have generalized that specific experience to say then Will needs to also move past this loss of a child in the same kind of way. And uh, one thing that I do find that happens quite a bit, uh, and I think this is not really a cultic problem. This is a, this is a really kind of a general human problem, is we really do fail to understand that people grieve differently. Yeah, totally. You know, and that their reactions to grief are legitimate and uh, and, and their own. And uh, there may be something unhealthy in some of those uh, strategies um, here and there. Uh, 
Um, certainly that is the case. But that all being said, it doesn't have to sort of fall in within this sort of cookie cutter kind of thing. And yeah. uh, it comes again to the sort of lack of empathy to really see the agency of humanity of another person. Um, yeah. They're just members of what's within versus that which is without. Right. Yeah. And we have that great exchange between Will and David, right? David is trying to use this very clinical approach on, on Will about passing off the suffering and the grief. And, and uh, you know, he tells him, I know how you feel. And, and Will has that, you know, line, you know, don't you, you, you don't know what I've been through. Yeah. And, and so many times that is the kind of shared human experience, you know, Dustin and I have both or all three of us have lost parents. Right. Yeah. Uh, and at different times and different places in our life, but none of us went through that chapter of our lives the same way. And, and though we had that somewhat shared experience uh, of very much losing someone close to us, the way we all came through that was a drastically different journey. And I think that is, you know, a great point to bring up Dustin. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a point made at, uh by either David or Eden, um, you know, somebody makes a comment about the way we, we, I think they say we, but they're, you know, they're kind of talking about American culture. Uh, they talk about the way we don't deal with death and they're not wrong. Right. right. Like I, I think yeah. if you want to talk about the way, you know, North America handles death, it definitely has a lot to, uh, probably tied to all the death that, uh, North American culture, as we know it today is caused. Uh, you know, I, I think you could, the tendency to not want to deal with uh, the reality of the, the shortness of life might come from uh, not wanting to deal with some certain things in the recent past. But as you said, Dustin, you've got to let people deal with shit how they're going to deal with it. You can't force somebody to process the way you think is healthy. Um, right. We, d- we didn't talk uh, a whole lot last week as much as I would have thought we would have. We didn't talk a lot about like the role of community uh, in grieving. Right. And uh, yeah. definitely community is essential, uh, mm-hmm. not not just in grief, but really in, in in any sort of emotional, you know, emotionally healthy life. Community is essential. Yeah, we're but social so beings. Is, yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, yeah, I, I definitely don't. Uh, who is it that said uh, human man's existence is uh, solitary, short and British? Was that John Locke? Is that who that is? Sounds like him. Yeah. Um, look, I, I don't buy that. But what I will say is I, I think what is as essential as community is people's right to emotional privacy. Um, and, and the the sort of the, the death video that they are shown, right, of, of this uh, member of the invitation um, dying of a terminal illness while surrounded by other members of the group. Uh, you know, this group sees that as a really beautiful moment. And you, absolutely, there there is beauty uh, for sure to be found in, in somebody being able to uh, die surrounded by people that care about them. But at the same time, you People are entitled to, again, Arthur, I, I love, you referenced it, um, and I did earlier, I love the way in which Will, like, stakes his, his ground and says, no, 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 you don't get to tell me how I feel. Uh, I appreciate your your empathy, but you cannot know what is going on inside of me right now. And, and people are allowed to have that privacy, and, and the way in which uh, that moment where they, they kind of bombard them with the invitation to the invitation, um via their uh, you know their, their recruiting video that's a very weird moment uh and it, it definitely is uh you know the, the group uh the members of the invitation have designed this dinner party uh a very particular way and now that we're in you know spoiler free fire territory you know we know it's for a you know a big old murder party um but before all of that kicks off the our 
the other members of this dinner party have, you know, just think they're being sold a, a way of life or, you know, a, some sort of wellness program. And, and even if that is all that was going on here, at, at a certain point, people are allowed to hold close to the chest like that which is bothering them. You know, uh, it's one thing to ask people to share their pain. It is another to uh, put people in a position where they feel like they have to share their pain. Uh, I don't know if uh, I've lost the thread or not, but uh, you know, I feel like I'm circling something. No, I think that's an important thread to hit on is that there is uh, – permission must be given for that kind of what I would say invasive – kind of direction. And I, and I don't know that, you know, giving that permission to a safe group of people, I, that's a good thing, but you have to do that on your own terms and they cannot elect themselves mm. as the persons to do that. Uh, it has to be invited. And uh, again, this is one of those things where, uh, you know, if, if we look at the sort of the, the most, you know, benign version of the, the cult, the invitation, it's probably, you know, without the murder cult bits, it's it's probably a, a program that is pretty effective. It, it's probably got some you know general pseudoscientific and scientific practices that um, people would find to be you know fairly useful. But they have given themselves over to that kind of spiritual you know guidance uh, to deal with whatever they, that, that they're dealing with, and I think that's good. Uh, you know, there's I'll tell a quick story. So um, I have a spiritual advisor in my life. And uh, we just rolled through Mother's Day. And, uh, you know, and one of the things the person asked me at one point was, you know, how I was dealing with grief because I've had a lot of recent deaths uh, in my family. And, you know, I said, I don't know how I deal with it. Probably not really well, you know, or whatever. (laughs) I can relate to that answer. You know, know, probably not very well. And then, he, you know, he asked me about what I was thinking about with Mother's Day. And I talked about the mother of my adopted daughter and what we're going to be doing there, the biological mother. Um, I talked about my wife, the mother of my children, and I talked about my grandmother who raised me. And he's like, is that it? I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, what else would I do? He goes, seriously? I'm like, what are you talking about, man? He goes, it's Mother's Day. And I realized that I had not even considered my own mom or even thinking about her for that. And he goes, that's probably something you need to work through. And I had given him permission for that. And so I was not resentful for that. But I guarantee you, if some rando Joe Blow off the street was telling me this is what I need to do about, you know, my relationship with my mom, you know, I, I, I tell him to go pound sand. Right. Um, yeah. And and that's the right thing to do, I think, in that particular kind of instance. But having people like that is a good thing is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Um, it's probably something helpful and healthy and useful uh, to do, but within, you know, you know, this person's safe, uh, you've Mm -hmm. made a decision in order to allow that sort of invasiveness and, uh, you've chosen those with whom you share that kind of stuff and those with whom you do not. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this does circle back to this idea, right? That, um, you know, emotional privacy is, is, is sort of a sacred thing. And if a group is telling you that your boundaries are, uh, your emotional boundaries are wrong, that, you, you know, your boundaries are actually just, uh, you know, your negative emotions blocking your, uh, your, your aura or whatever, you know, uh, new age or pseudo religious talk somebody's going to throw at you. 
that's probably not a safe person to share your feelings with. Anybody that would ask you to share more than you are comfortable sharing. Now, again, it's it's one thing to say, I don't know if you want to hear this. And, you know, it's one thing for somebody to give you a green light to share something that might be hard to talk about. Right. It is another thing for somebody to berate you for not wanting to share something that might be hard to talk about. Well, and what the guy ended up saying is, do you think that's probably normal? And I'm like, well, no, probably not. And <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about some things now. Uh, th- that's my point, I guess. And that's why I sort of threw out my own vulnerability here is just to show you mm, an effective mm. means in which this might work. I, um, you know, I, I want to read a quote from Karen Kusama that's, I think, maybe going to put a pin in this topic and maybe transition us to an, another real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, she kind of cites, uh, I, I, she cited the films like Ur theme um, as a, a metaphor for the nightmare, uh, for what the nightmare of anxiety really is, which is the irrational sense that people are trying to hurt you somehow. Um, and, you know, this this does, of course, tie into the fact that for, throughout the runtime of the film, we, we are unsure if Will is being irrational or not, mm-hmm. right? We, we aren't entirely like, yeah, Eden and David and Sadie are creeps. Uh, and then their buddy Pruitt shows up and he's an even bigger creep. But also they seem okay, right? They seem happy, but also they seem a little too happy. And and it definitely we, we get to live in this moment of unknowing with Will of do they seem too happy because they're faking something or do they seem too happy because we, and by we I mean Will uh, as the audience surrogate, uh, are too sad and, and we're the ones with the problem, right? Which I think is really, really interesting. The ways in which, you know, anxiety can cause you to put up walls against somebody who might have your best interests in mind. Absolutely. Like, and as you said, you know, it's, it's good to have people in your life that do challenge you. And sometimes you, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, you've asked to challenge you. Right. But, right. uh, it, it can become difficult to, to allow yourself to be, have that kind of vulnerability with other people. For sure. Um, I want to move into something else regarding cults in general. Uh, I think okay. that that would, I think apply very specifically to the invitation and it's something we really haven't touched on yet. And that's the apocalypticism of cults. Ooh, yeah. Sort of the, uh, we, we talked about, you know, death cults in sort of vague terms when we talked to uh, Midsommar, uh, but you're right. The, the uh, do you mean when you say apocalyptic, do you mean like uh, apocalyptic in the sort of the, um, you know, the literal end of the world sense, or do you mean apocalyptic and sort of the uh, uh, mass death sense, I guess? Well, well, I mean, both and. I mean, that's how that mm-hmm. works, right? It is the way in which this sort of massive transition needs to happen in human history usually is full of blood, right? And uh, full of bloodshed. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the Heaven's Gate cult and the mass suicide, you know, with the Hailbach Comet thing, you know, or the apocalypticism of the Branch Davidians, um, who were expecting the sort of um, Gog and Magog, Battle of Armageddon kind of uh, war to take place. And so it gave them license for the violence um, that, uh, that ended up, you know, dest- you know, when the fire started um, destroying the compound and all those people that were there. And uh, I, I, I find that um, one of the most unhealthy things that we can see uh, in a, a given group, and I would say this also applies politically, you know, is again this sort of apocalypticism because I do see even a, a political version of that uh, at work, you know, in sort of the extreme right uh, right now, where you know civil war and those kind of things are the fantasies 
of those kinds of groups. And that is what holds those groups together in the same way that, you know, sort of a Book of Revelation style, uh, premillennial dispensationalist kind of end of the worldview uh, does this with some evangelical groups. Um, where, uh, 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 because we're holding on to this, uh, there, there's a there's a way in which the, those high control versions of that um, try to manipulate that sense of the end of the world, and that becomes another instrument of control. Is you've got to be with us, you've got to be on the right side, and you've got to be ready to do what's you know anything, which usually involves heinous sort of uh, dehumanizing acts, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's. You know, there's 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 groups that are destructive, uh, just as, but by virtue of their organization, right? Uh, you know, a group that requires uh, you to um, debilitate yourself, either uh, physically, emotionally, financially, sexually, ha- however the the group operates, whatever their their bugbear is, uh, you know. There's that kind of of destructive group, and then there's of course you know a doomsday group, right? It's it's interesting. It's a Venn diagram, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, not not every group who thinks the end is nigh is going to ask you to, uh, uh, you know, make yourself unsafe on a given day, and not every group who's you know going to murder you or abuse you thinks the end is nigh. I, I guess, but there there definitely is a this. A, Disconcerting overlap, that's for sure. Um, but it does all tie into, I mean, sort of the same thing we're talking about, right? With, uh, you know, the ways in which the group within this film uh, expects a certain amount of, uh, or expects a certain kind of emotional reaction to grief and death, which is to kind of just let it go. Uh, in, in that same way, you know, it, the, the the doomsday cult might not necessarily expect you to uh, um, partake in a mass suicide, but it might expect you to, uh, hold a certain idea about what is or is not likely to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, both of which are probably not healthy, though. <laughs> right. Um, is there any particular aspect uh, of that sort of strain of, uh, you know, that cult uh, that, that is interesting to you uh, in the context of this film? Uh, well, I mean, it's not particularly vengeful here, which is interesting from, you know, the sort of religious landscape of mm-hmm. more established religions. You know, here it is, um, they're they're seeking enlightenment. And so there's a lot of uh, hail bop, uh, again, uh, Heaven's Gate cult kind of thing, Marshall White stuff uh, that seems to be more in play with this invitation group, uh, how they work out. But in, in a lot of others, and again, I'm thinking about Koresh and I'm thinking about uh, uh, right wing militia types. Uh, there is this idea that uh, this coming war, right, and uh, mm. that you don't have to necessarily shoot anybody right now, but you better have your guns ready to do it when the time comes and uh, be trained and prepared and all that kind of stuff. And that that fantasization about that event is what leads to, you know, mm. crazy acts of violence. And uh, and so, um, you know, the apocalyptic here. Um, again, sort of a set of murder-suicides, which is an act of violence. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the the violence of the invitation. Uh, but it's not so much, you know, we're killing the infidels here. It is by killing these people, we are bringing them along with us, kicking and screaming. It's sort of Yeah, like, we're doing them a favor. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, which is, of course, what happened at the at the People's Temple, right? Yeah. Like, it, yeah. you know, it, it gets talked about as a... That, yeah. It gets talked about as a mass suicide pretty frequently, but that's a gross oversimplification of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is interesting, 
what, what you're talking about, it, it, these groups, whatever their you know focus is, whatever their ideology or uh, theology is, there is often a certain amount of imposed. Um, What's where I'm looking for here? Um, victimhood, and I don't really like that word. I wish I could th- thought of something better, but that's what I'm going to go with for right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, but an assumption, yeah, yeah, martyr, right? And assume, there is an attack from the outside, the the society, straight society, um, you know, mass society, uh, popular culture, or, um, you know, mainstream culture it is after us because we have unlocked the uh, the secret truth of the universe, right? And and so the powers that be will come for us and, and we'll, we'll stop our, our, uh, our belief. And that is a very effective way uh, to get people invested and to per- perpetuate a belief, right? Is to, uh, to, to make it the, the focus of day-to-day life, right? You know, we were talking about high control groups in much more detail last week, but, you know, a good way to exert control over people is to tell them that, they need to listen to you because if they don't, they will not be prepared for the the inevitable destruction that is just around the corner. Well, it's a good way to ump the ante for how much commitment is required because totally. we're so close to the end now, right? So um, those are my major thoughts. Are there any other major issues that we'd like to delve into regarding the invitation before we render a verdict? Uh, don't ever trust anybody that won't let you leave. Correct. That's you know that's not really anything that uh, we need to talk about. It's just uh, you know something I wrote down that I felt like we should uh, <laughs> make sure we say. Uh, if you if you go to somebody's party, uh, whether it's at a house or uh, you know a communal building, if they're they're weird about you wanting to leave, leave more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just do want to. I kind of threw out that quote from Kasama about anxiety, but I, I do from a formal standpoint, that is one of the things I like most about this movie is, is the way that the, the uh, anxiety uh, that Will is experiencing is, is made uh, palpable, like in the craft of the film. Mm-hmm. I think it's really like the, the, the way the audio drops out for like the actual dinner scene proper when everybody's seated and eating is so distressing, right? To, to have all the laughter drop out. And for all you hear is the sound of clinking glasses and like food sounds is so distressing. Yes. Um, and and the, the way in which, uh, you know, uh, anxiety can take what uh, on the surface would be a, a lovely, uh, you know, dinner experience uh, can make it the most horrific tableau you've ever witnessed. Uh, just a, a cacophony of gnashing teeth uh, and dead eyes. Uh, it, it is really effective filmmaking. And, and again, I think, Maybe the the biggest strength of this film is the way it consistently keeps us uh, unnerved. And again, I talked about that with uh, Midsommar, Um, you know, the the way that film kind of keeps us unmoored the same way Danny is by the, you know, the, not only uh, her grief and international travel and, you know, uh, sleep uh, deprivation and and drug use, like all of these things are, are, affecting her her experience of reality uh, and in that same way i think the invitation does a really good job of of making us feel that that heightened uh, fight or flight mode that will is in right and uh i don't know the, the fact that w- the film goes all the way up to the edge of letting you think that will is going to actually be the bad guy of the piece right that will is his own villain within this story like it it lets you think that for a long time um 
right? Like mm-hmm. even up until the moment where Sadie comes at him with a uh, comes at him for ruining the dinner party, um, it lets you think for a moment that wow, maybe Sadie was just you know mad at him for ruining their party, and he just uh, killed this woman um, who was just pissed that he ruined their party. And until we do get the cut over to Gina, who has you know clearly been poisoned, like it, it is, it's such effective filmmaking. And again, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a bigger like theory uh, point or ideological point to make here, but just from a, you know, telling a story point, it, it is very cool uh, as, a, as a device. They deploy the red herrings very well. That's one of them. The absence of um, whoever's late, who's always late. I forget. Choi. Oh, Choi, God. Yeah. And the, the voicemail from Choi. Yeah, exactly. Like, Will has that, that huge, like, where is he? I know where he is. He's dead and you did it. And then Choi shows up. Like, yeah. what an incredible moment in the movie. To Every time you as an audience viewer think, ah, finally, this is the moment where Will will be vindicated. Uh, he looks like an asshole. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that does kind of get at this thing that we uh, I talked about earlier, where keeping yourself safe will often uh, not be socially acceptable based on like the rules we have for the way you're supposed to interact with people. Uh, you're not supposed to uh, uh, be rude, uh, e- even if uh, being rude is the thing that's going to keep you safe. Yep, for sure. Yeah, and uh, I don't know that that's a weird uh, uh, that's a weird aspect of uh, social interaction within our culture, and oh, something worth examining, I guess. Yep, yep. Well, all right. Let's render a verdict then. What do we say? Show for trash regarding the film, the invitation. What do you say, Arthur? Uh, let's shelf it. All right. Thank you for that. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I'll agree with that. I uh, I think it's extremely shelfable. Uh, it's you know it's probably going to be on streaming forever because of its uh, its you know very small release, but uh, I think it's incredible. Yep, for sure, for sure. Um, so, all right, um, I'm also going to say Shelf. I think it's a very, very good movie and a very, very tight thriller and worth your watch. Um, Dalton, say the words about uh, social media interaction. Uh, yeah, if you uh, like this show and have thoughts about it, uh, here's a couple ways you can uh, make those thoughts known. For your long-form feedback, you can email us at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. If you want to keep up to date on uh, show release- episode releasings uh, and other podcasts in our orbit, you can go follow us at Good Trash Media on Twitter. Uh, finally, rate, review, subscribe. You know the deal. You've listened to a podcast before. And uh, if you want to uh, help us keep the lights on or, uh, you know, see, see what kind of fun uh, goodies you can get, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. Very cool. Very cool. Arthur, um, what's next? Yeah. Is this the end? Will this be the, the final uh, entry in our welcome to the family uh, marathon? It will be. Um, and we're sorry to hear you're not willing to consider what our family offers you, but that's okay. There is ever only one place this ship was going to dock. Next week, we visit Summer Isle and go one-on-one with the Wicker Man. Okay, now which one? I gotta know. The original. Okay, all right. Very I, well, cool. look, as much as I think it would make more sense for this podcast for us to do the Nick Cage version, uh, I am very excited to finally have an excuse to watch the original in its entirety. It's oh, I was tempted to do Nick Cage, but it wasn't streaming. Ah. <laughs> Those choices are important. I'm excited to talk because that movie's come up a lot uh, over the course of the marathon. So uh, that'll be a lot of fun. And I think it'll have some good uh, 
valences alongside uh, Midsummer. So fun times there. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking, dear listener, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.